you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask your guiding and leading and, and direction. We thank you for your spirit's guiding in Jesus' name. Amen. Job chapter 18. In the previous chapter, Job's basically been said, saying that he's at the end of his wits. He's ready to die. He can't handle anymore. Um, and then we get Bildad speaking to him in response to what Job had said. And basically in this chapter, Bildad's going to say, Job, you are correct. Uh, the, wicked, the wicked died. <laughs> he, he, he's really kind. <laughs> you know, and it's really interesting. These guys, when they speak to Job, have no compassion in what they're speaking. It's like, we know we're right, you're wrong, we're not going to be compassionate on you at all. And this is the statements that they keep coming back with. And, and that's why Job has said in a couple of places, you guys are terrible counselors. Uh, you have no sympathy, you have no care. And so here's Bildad's answer in chapter 18. Then answered Bildad the Shuhite and said, how long will, you, will it be ere you make an end of words? Mark, and afterwards we will speak. Wherefore are we counted as beasts and reputed vile in your sight? He tears himself in his anger. Shall the earth be forsaken for you? And shall the rock be removed out of his place? Yea, the light of the wicked shall be put out. The spark of his fire shall not shine. The light shall be dark in his tabernacle, and his candles shall be put out with him. The steps of his strength shall be straightened, and his own counsel shall cast him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet. He walks upon a snare. The gin shall, shall take him by the heel, and the robber shall prevail against him. The snare is laid for him in the ground, and a trap for him in his way. Terror shall make him afraid on every side, and shall drive him to his feet. We're going to stop there because lot, lots of stuff there. It's all very poetic. So Bildad goes, you know, how long will it be ere you make an end of your words? Or when are you going to quit defending yourself is what he's really saying. How long is it going to be that you are going to keep giving these answers and utterance to try to defend yourself? Remember that they say, Job, you've obviously sinned. Otherwise, you wouldn't have had all these bad things happen to you. Job says, I have not done anything worthy of how bad things are happening. He, re he recognizes that he sins, all right? But he says, I have not, basically he keeps saying, I have not done anything worthy of all this bad thing, losing my family, losing all my possessions. I've done nothing that bad. They come back with the whole uh, prosperity gospel. You obviously, got Job, you've done something wrong. Otherwise, you would still have all your stuff. And this is their answers back and forth the whole time. And every time Job speaks and says, I have not done it, they're going, Job, would you just quit lying and, and admit what you've done? I mean, they don't, it's all in flowery language, but that's basically what they're saying. And this is what happens in prosperity gospel churches. If somebody's having a bad time, they'll go after them and go, you just need to confess and tell everybody what you've been done wrong so that you can get your blessing. It's all your fault that this is happening. This is what they keep telling Job. Job, when are you going to quit making excuses and just admit what you've done? You know, how long is it going to take you to get there? Uh, and it says, uh, mark or literally understand, and afterwards we will speak. When you understand what you've done wrong, Job, then we will speak and try to be. But what he's trying to say is, Job, when you finally admit what you're doing, we will try to comfort you and give you guidance on how to get your life back. And this is the problem when people get away from grace and illegalism. Well, you just finally tell us what you do, and then we will give you the 28 steps to get back in favor with God because we'll, we'll, we'll show you what you can do to get back into favor because God's grace and mercy isn't enough. Now, they will never say it quite that way, but what are they doing when they tell you, here's a bunch of steps to follow? God's mercy and grace isn't enough to restore you. And this is what he's telling them. You know, Job, when you finally get to where you would admit that you are evil and awful and have something secret in your life, we will tell you how to get it out of your life. All right? And this is a very dangerous place for people to get into. Dangerous for us as our individual looking for something, the steps to do to please God, because all it is is by grace. And the more we recognize God's grace and his mercy because of what Jesus did on the cross the easier our life gets to be. 
because I'm not sitting here checking off a bunch of boxes. Whoops, I missed one. I got to start all over and make up for the one that I missed. It's God's grace and mercy. And because he's living in us, we don't want to do what's wrong because his spirit comes in and changes who we are from the inside out. And we're not living by rules. We're living by the liberty that God gives us for grace. And this is the important thing. Too many times we're taught, here's your rules. Follow, you, follow these rules and you'll please God. And then Isaiah turns around and tells us, all your righteousnesses are filthy rags. So that wipes out anything that we can do. Here's my check mark, check mark, check mark, check mark, check mark. And God says, it's not enough. Everything that you've done that is good is not even enough to get you into my presence. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. It all comes down to God paying the debt, and we accept that debt payment. All that all matters. Now, we've, then we'll sit there and try to sit and make rules for it. You know, I've got to read my Bible so many, one hour a day. I've got to pray for an hour. I've got to make sure I go to church every time the doors are open. I've got to witness to a certain amount of people every, every week or month. And then I'm going to be, God and I are going to be happy. And God's going to bless me because I'm doing so many good things for him. No, he's going to bless us because we're his children honoring him. Not because we're trying to earn our place. And this is one of the things, even when I was managing, I did not want people that were trying to earn my favor. I just wanted them to come in, do their job the best they could, and then be able to reward their, their actions. Because otherwise you get what's called brown-nosing you. They're, they're only doing what's right when you're around. And it's like, no, I, don't, I want you to do the best you can all the time whether I'm here or not, because I'm hearing what you're doing when I'm not here. God's the same way. You know, we'll go, well, God, I'm going to do what you want when, when, when I know you're seeing me. When I'm at church, I'm going to do it. When I've got my Bible open, I'm going to do it. When I'm over at the bar, you're not there, and I'm not going to do, do anything to honor you there. No, it doesn't work that way. He sees us all the time, and it's only by his grace and mercy that we can survive. And this is the really interesting thing about where Christianity has come to in these days. There is so much work-oriented Christianity. And I've been there. I've been there where I'm just doing everything and not truly believing that that's what I need to do to please God because I knew I was saved. I knew it was by the blood of Christ. But by the same token, I'm looking for what can I do that's going to please God? What can I do to please God? How can I stay busy? And there's nothing wrong with being busy if it's for the right reasons. If I'm staying busy just because I want to serve God and his people, not because I'm trying to get brownie points and everything, then that's a good thing. But if I'm doing all of it so that people can see and see how wonderful I am and hopefully that God can see how wonderful I am and be pleased that I'm doing so much work, it's, it's all for naught because the motivation is not right. And this is what Bildad's telling Job, Job, you know, obviously you've done something. And again, I keep going back to the first two chapters of this first uh, book tell us, God said the testimony of Job is he's a perfect and upright man who hates evil. That's God's testimony of Job. His friends keep telling him, Job, you must be a really terrible person. Otherwise, all these bad things wouldn't be happening to you because they believe in that prosperity gospel. You've been, you know, if you honor God, you get rewarded. And so they have trouble with this whole thing that Job cannot be a perfect man because he just went from being one of the wealthiest people in, in the East to the poorest person in the East and lost his family besides. So Job, you must be terribly awful. Look at all this bad stuff that happens to you. And this is the whole issue that's going on here. And they're going, if you just tell us what's going on and you admit it, we'll, we'll understand and we'll, we'll help you out. Uh, then he goes, wherefore are we counted as beast and reputed vile in your sight? Job, you think that we don't know anything. You know, you're treating us like we're ignorant savages. <laughs> in, in a nice definition, a change of things. And in one sense, yes, he is. Because they weren't walking with God. They weren't speaking God's authority. They weren't building him up. Now, he's, he would never have said anything like that, but basically he's ignoring what they've said. He's saying, you worthless counselors, you know, you haven't helped me a bit. Bildad's interpretation of that rejection is not a spiritual one. Well, maybe he's right. I'm not building him up and helping him. 
but a reactionary one saying, well, we're trying to tell you everything we know and you must be bad because you know, these things would not be happening to you unless you were bad, so quit trying to tell us that we don't know anything, even though they didn't know anything. And this is the thing that when we get a rebuke from somebody, we have to be very careful how we respond. We need to first look at ourselves and say, am I deserving any part of this rebuke? And if we do, then we have to humble ourselves and correct, correct our nature. If we don't have it, then we still need to be humble in our response back because we do not want to intensify the problems. Now, maybe Job has not been all that humble in his re rebuke to them either. Calling them terrible counselors and all this stuff was not the best way to, to be responding to him, but he's in pain. I understand his point of view. He is in pain. He's been suffering. And these guys are just making life more miserable for him emotionally. He's already in all kinds of suffering. He's already in pain, emotional pain. As all of his children are dead. He's lost everything. Now he's lost his health. And everybody's telling him how awful he is and how he deserves what he's getting because he's had done something wrong. So he's going to lash back out at him. All right, and that's not an uncommon common thing, which is why we need to also be careful. How do we respond when somebody lashes out at us? Whether we deserve it or not really doesn't matter. We need to be still responding in a humble, edifying way rather than giving them back what they're, what they're doing. And this is one of the things I learned it very well in, in dealing with the public. You know, being nice to people whether they deserve it or not has been a good use for me over the years um, because I was in management positions and I could not give people what they deserved. You know, it's, there were times when I wanted to. <laughs> um, I've had more than one person come up to me and say, how could you have been nice to that person? They were being such a jerk. Going, well, I won't, it won't matter another, another couple hours. I won't remember them at all, so it doesn't matter. I don't, take, I don't internalize most of what it is, and that's the most important thing. Don't internalize it. Usually it's not an attack on you. It's an attack on the situation. It's an attack on their feelings. And if we just remember that it's really not against me, even if they attack me, it's not really me that they're usually attacking. And sometimes when family members attack us, we feel it very personally and everything, we just need to draw back and say, okay, God, just help me get through this. It's not really me, or they don't know me, or it's not a true statement. And we need to just be able to understand. And if it is a true statement, weed through the truth and say, this is, I'm gonna take advantage of the truth. And so these are, this is where he's saying, you know, Job, you're looking at us, it's just like a bunch of beasts or unclean animals. You know, uh, he says, he tears himself in his anger. Shall the earth be forsaken for you? And shall the rock be moved, removed out of his place? What he's saying here is real simple. Job, you deserve what it is. And will God not bring the judgment that you deserve? <laughs> All right, it's in Jewish poetry where it repeats the same similes. All right, uh, anger, will the earth forsake, be forsaken for you? You know, will God not bring the stuff that belongs your way just because you are, you know, what are you saying? You think you're more important than even the earth and, the, and nature? All right. Um, and will the rock move out of your way? You know, so he's being a little facetious here. Job, you think you're so important. You think God is going to bend the rules of nature for you. What's he saying? Again, the same thing I've been saying. Job, we know you're guilty. And because we know you're guilty, will God bend the rules of for, uh, against you because you think you're better than everybody else. Now, these guys are harsh. <laughs> there is no sympathy in their counsel at all. Even if somebody deserves what's coming to them, we still want to be somewhat sympathetic and saying, I know that you're in great pain. How can we help you? We know that the, you know, even if this is deserved, how can I help you not have the, you know, to lessen the pain? Not once has any of these guys tried to say, well, let me plant some new fields for you. Let me get you, let me get you a, another herdsman and you know, a, a small herd to restart, restart for you. None of them have done anything to help him. None of them have offered to help. And now he, at one point he says, I didn't ask you for anything. And he's true, he's never asked them for anything. But at the same time, I'm sure he would have been, wow, here's somebody at least cares enough to try to help me. 
He's given me, you know, one, one ram and three ewes to start a new herd, and he's given me somebody to, to be the herdsman until I get my strength back, and now I've got something to start with. All he's doing is being criticized. You deserved all this, and, you know, now you're going to pay. It almost works into the idea of what karma is in the, in the false religions. Now, we talk about karma as, as getting what, you know, reaping what you sow. Karma is much, much more than that. Karma means that when you end up having bad happen, nobody should rescue you because you're paying for all the bad you do. And if they help you, they're not, they're not helping you because you're having bad happen to you because you deserve the bad. And if they help take the bad away from you, then they will take your bad karma and make your karma worse. So karma is so much more deeper than this. And this is kind of where these guys are at. We can't help you, Job, because if we help you, you're not going to learn your lesson. All right, and we in the Western world don't fully understand karma. When the missionaries go and they help the untouchables in India and, and many of the places where karma is really big, they look at them like in horror. How can you guys be doing this? They're suffering because of all the bad they've done in a previous life and you're gonna make things worse for them and you're gonna be taking on bad karma yourself and it just blows their mind that as Christians, we care enough about the person to help them out of their situation and they don't understand it. I think this is part of what's going on here. Job, you deserve what it is and if we, if we help you, we're not, you're not gonna learn your lesson and you're, and you're going to have more bad things happen to you because we're not helping you by helping you. And that's kind of a sad point of view, but there's a lot of people that think that way. How many times do we look at somebody who's homeless and say, well, they're homeless because of all the bad stuff they've done. We don't even know them, but, you know, they're obviously drinking and drugging and all these things, so that's why they're homeless. And it's probably true in most of the cases, but is that a way to help them? No. You know, just pay your debt and you know, get, get, enough, get enough where you get tired of what you're doing and you'll get, you'll get rid of all your problems. That doesn't work. And we have that same kind of attitude that Job's friends have. We can't help you out of this, Joe, because you'll never learn your lesson if we help you out of this. All right? Um, and then he says, When the light of the wicked shall be put out and the spark of his fire, fire shall not shine. In other words, you're going to die. <laughs> Very poetic. Very poetic in this, but, you know, your, your light of your life is going to go out and you're, and you're going to die and, and basically saying it's deserved for the wicked. If the wicked do this, they, they, they deserve to die. You can, you can just hear how kind Bildad's being. Uh, Job, you deserve to die because you're wicked, and, it's not, and that's what happens. You know, Job, yes, you're right. You're, you're, you're so bad, you're going to die. Obviously, you're going to die. You're bad. Um, the steps of his strength shall be straightened, and his own counsel shall be cast down. His own strength, his vigor, shall suffer. And distress. In other words, you're going to keep getting sicker and sicker because you're not admitting what you're done, what you've done, and this, and um, what, I'm, and his own counsel shall cast him down. In other words, your own conscience is going to to get get to you. And this is a true statement. When somebody is doing something wrong, the conscience does come out and attack to the people and makes them feel worse and worse as they're going along. Now, Job doesn't have any kind to be conscious attacking on him. Uh, but here's Bildad saying, your conscience is going to get the better of you. You're losing your vigor. You've lost your strength. You've lost everything. And eventually, even though you're not admitting it, your conscience is going to bother you and bring you down. You know, and this is the arrogancy that he has. You know, for us, his statement is kind of true. I can be kind to somebody and help them. Why? Because their conscience will attack them if they need, if they need to be changed. The conscience you know, does not go away just because their circumstances become good. Matter of fact, sometimes the conscience is worse when somebody helps them get there and they're going, I'm getting all this stuff I don't deserve and how can I get all these blessings when I know that I deserve all these bad things and it almost works the other way around to help them up so their conscience can really get after them. You know, and this is, again, not understood by him. He's saying, yes, the conscience is going to get you, but we're not going to help get you up. You know, we're just going to let you wallow in the, in the pain and then let your conscience wallow, wallow there with you and make it worse. Uh, I am glad I don't have friends like Bill Dad. 
he goes, for he is cast into a net by his own feet. He walks upon a snare. This word cast literally means that he's impelled or pushed by his own feet. In other words, he sees the net, he sees the trap, and runs right into it anyway. All right? And this is Bildad saying, you know, Job, if you just would admit what you're doing, you wouldn't be running into this trap and making things worse. And his feet walk upon the snare, the trap again. So, again, a, this double repeating. We've seen a lot of Jewish poetry here where you, where you have a simile and then another simile. So a par parallelism is their way of doing poetry. They don't look for rhyming words necessarily. They go, here's one point, here's another point. In this case, he's using simile, both the same. The other side of their poetry is parallel, uh, or excuse me, opposites, where you say one thing and then you say the opposite, and that's a form of poetry as well for them. All right? Uh, so he's using a lot of poetry in this, in this section. Um, and it says, the gin, or the bird trap, is what gin means. It's a bird trap. The bird trap shall take him by his heel, and the robber shall prevail against him. And robber in this, in this sentence is a very interesting word because it literally means snare or trap. I do not know why the King James <laughs> translated it as robber. Um, so he says, the, the bird trap shall catch him by his heel, and the, and the snare of the trap shall prevail against him. He cannot get away from the, get away from the, the traps. In other words, what Bildad is telling him is, Job, you're getting what you deserve, and you're walking from one trap to the other. It's kind of like those comedy shows where somebody sets off a, a mousetrap, and as he's dancing around, sets off another mousetrap, and then he catches his hand on another mousetrap. This is what he's basically saying. Now, Moses, Moses, yeah. Job, everywhere you're going, you're setting off traps and you're getting caught. You know, just quit moving around, quit and just admit what you're doing. We'll help you avoid the traps once you admit what you're doing. But until then, you're just going to set one trap off after another. And so, and the snare is laid for him in the ground and the trap is in his way. So here we go, more. He, he's being very redundant. And really what he is saying through all of this is, Job, you are getting what you deserve. One trap isn't enough for you, then you're going to walk into another trap. And that one's not enough, you're going to walk into another trap. And if that one's not enough, you're going to walk into another trap. And we see these things in, in various movies where somebody sets off a trap, you know, some of the military movies or something where they, you know, get out of one trap and you get to, guy gets to the end and he's all beat up and bruised because he's walked into every single trap and gets to the, gets to the guy that he's been trying to get and he's so beat up he can't do anything anyway. It's almost comical the way he's saying it, but he's being very serious. Job, if you would quit stepping from one trap into the next trap, you're making life miserable. Why aren't you learning after the first trap? And you're walking into the next trap. <laughs> it's comedy. It's part of uh, military. You know, some of the military things uh, where people get beat up. You know, it's almost comedy when they when they do it the way they do it, because a good trap's supposed to really trap the person completely. But he's saying, you're just walking from one trap to the other. When are you going to learn your lesson, Job? <laughs> Quit walking from one trap to the other. Uh, terrors shall make him afraid on every side and shall drive him to his feet. This whole idea of these terrors, his fears, shall make him afraid on every side and shall drive him to his feet or scatter him and move him, move him. Again, this is the idea, if you've ever seen the, the pictures, maybe movies, maybe you've even been there, where you get so scared that you run from one place to another and everywhere you're going, you're seeing whatever you're scared of. And I've never had it happen, but I've seen it in lots and lots of movies and stuff. You know, they bounce from one place to the other and get scared every single place they're going. This is what Bildad's saying. Job, you're running from one problem and running right into another terror and running right into another terror and running, and maybe even the same terror. He goes, everywhere you're going, the terrors are surrounding you. And what a judgmental person he's being. Job, you know, if you would just stop, stop running. Stop running from trap to trap. Stop running from the terrors. Job has been doing what he's supposed to do. He's been in sackcloth and ashes. He's been praying to God. He's been seeking God. It's only been since his friends came along to help him get out of his problems that you might see this idea of, 
trap to trap, and that's and they're only interpreting that because he won't admit that he's bad. You know, he he is not admitting that he's done anything worthy of all the judgment that he's received. And they keep hammering him, saying, Job, obviously you deserve this. Because this much bad does not happen to a good person. And again, we've said this over and over. They, they understand the prosperity gospel really well. And somehow in our day and age, they think the prosperity gospel is new. It goes all the way back to the first story of the Bible in Job. Prosperity gospel. You, you get good, and, you, and if you're not having good, then you've done something wrong. And the sad thing about this is, when you live under that prosperity gospel, everything that goes wrong, you're looking at and saying, what did I do wrong? Why did I do this? And everybody else is looking at you in the church, and nobody's being kind, nobody's being, being nice, because you obviously deserve what you got. And there's no kindness, there's no mercy, there's no edification exactly what Job's friends are doing to him. Nowhere do they ever consider that what is going on here is, may not be Job's fault. And I've seen so many people that go to prosperity gospel churches that get beat up by the church when things go wrong. And it's like, why? Even if they deserve it, why do you want to beat them up? Jesus never went to people and said, this is all because of what you've done, so you deserve it, and I'm just going to leave you wallowing in the pigsty until you get, get right. And then maybe we'll think about helping you. Jesus never did that. He loved people so much that he said, let's lift you up. What did he tell the woman caught in adultery? Who, who is accusing you? No, no one, sir, neither do I. Go and sin no more. That's Jesus' message to us. I'm giving you grace to bring you back to position. Go out and do not continue sinning. That's a very different message than the prosperity gospel message. Prosperity message says, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and then maybe we'll teach you, you know, have some forgiveness and mercy for you. But until you are actually you know, willing to admit what you've done wrong and, and get yourself up, we don't care. That is not the God, God's message. That is not his action. That is a satanic message. And when God gets to start speaking in this book, he's going to tell them, Job, pray for, your, pray for these men because I'm going to destroy them because they misrepresented me. And so their whole life is based on will Job do what he's told to pray for them after they beat him up for 30 for some chapters. You know, Job could have said, okay, God, you take them out. I'm looking forward to watching them get what they deserve. But Job did exactly what he said. He would have mercy and be a good, good counselor for them and prayed for them. And God gave them mercy. Now, I'm sure there were consequences for what they did, but not, not the consequences they deserved. And this is the, the good news. How do we respond to people? How do we react to people that are in trouble? How do we react to people who judge us? You know, God says that we're to be merciful to them. Because he says, do good to those who despitefully use you. Love those who hate you. Real easy things for us to do as human beings, but that's what we're told to do. And yet, how would we have responded to these guys like, like them attacking us all the time? Are we going to have a godly attitude and saying, God, I know that they're, they're not doing what they're right, but I ask you to be kind to them. What did Jesus do on the cross? He says, Father, forgive them. They put him on a cross. They beat him with a flagellum to almost dead. They pounded on him for a while before that. He should have been dead before he ever got to the cross. And then he is on the cross saying, forgive them. How many of us would do that in the same place? Knowing that they're out to kill us. Now, if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, there's several places where people did the same thing that Jesus did. Stephen did it as he's being, being stoned. Father, forgive them, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, which just angered them even more. But all through Fox's Book of Martyrs, we see stories of people forgiving their oppressors as they're killing them. Now, I'm not absolutely sure that I can do that. Now, God may give me the grace if it comes down to it. But I find it probably a very hard thing to, 
to even contemplate. I'd like to think that I can do it with no problem. And I have done it in some places, not when my life has been at stake. But there's been times when I've said, God, forgive them. They're being really stupid. Forgive them. It kind of seems to me like if people go to a prosperity church, you, you almost, like if things weren't going well, and then you knew that they were going to harp on you, you would lie or not show up or something. Or I don't know, I would say I would, but I mean, you know what I mean? Like you were saying they were harping. There is a lot of that where it, they drive, it drives them from, from church, from God. From the judgment because of all the judgment they're, they're under. But the bigger problem is, if you really go to one of those churches, you buy into it yourself. You're buying into the whole works mentality. If I do what I'm supposed to, I'm going to be blessed. If I'm not being blessed, I'm not doing the work. So now I become, I don't need them to tell me how bad I am because I'm starting to look at myself and going, okay, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? I thought I was trying to do so good. I must not be praying enough. I must not be reading my Bible enough. I must not be coming to church enough. You can't, and that's the problem. Basically, the prosperity gospel is a cultic atmosphere, and I want to be careful using that because cultic means Jesus isn't Savior and, and all of that, but it is very cultic because now it's my works that keep me. You know, I may believe that I'm saved by Jesus, but I keep myself by doing good works. And if I'm not doing enough good works, I may or may not be saved because I may not have made the right decision for God. And, and then I start beating myself up. Yeah, it becomes like an idolizing religion. Like yeah. yeah, it's all self-centered. I'm not dependent on God. I'm not dependent on God. I'm dependent on my works. And what you see in front of you. And I think if, you had, if your personality is the type where you already beat up on yourself, then that would... You're really in trouble in that environment at that point. And the, the problem I have seen over the years, I have seen so many people that have been beat up by the prosperity gospel that it's almost impossible to bring grace into their life enough for them to understand that they've been lied to all their life. And, you know, the other side of this is they'll look at you and say, well, that grace stuff, that, that, you're just making a license to sin. They can do whatever they want. Well, on one side, if you can use it as a license to sin, then you don't know God in the first place. And this is the, the thing about it. I have never seen people truly change their life under the prosperity gospel and legalism. They may discipline their life and look good on the outside, but their heart is totally wicked and given the opportunity they will live out what they want to live out and not be changed grace changes us from the inside because I'm no longer paranoid about doing things wrong I now can focus on a relationship with Christ and then he comes in and he changes me from the inside out he gives me a new creation on the inside and I have seen more people's lives changed by grace and mercy then law has ever changed them. Law just gets them, well, I'm following my rules and everybody thinks I'm looking pretty good, but man, I, if they really knew who I were, who, who I, what I wanted to do and who I am, they wouldn't be happy at all with me. And this is the problem that happens over time. Legalism binds people up. At the very worst, they're afraid to do anything because they might fail, they might do something wrong from God. Grace makes me totally free because it's not me, it's God. So I can go out and I can mess up and God is still going to forgive me. But I'm trying. I'm trying to do something. And God's grace steps in and says, you are forgiven. I still am going to use you. I'm not throwing you away because you didn't do things exactly right. Grace and liberty are so special for us. And I've looked at it over the years, you know, 52 years of walking in Christianity and watched grace change lives. And I've been in a handful of legalistic churches and I couldn't stand them because of all the phony baloney that was going on, all the people that were bound up and would never do anything for God because they were so afraid of doing something wrong because their legalism, if they couldn't say some rule that says do this, it would scare the daylights out of them to do anything else. They're paralyzed. And when, they do, when something does go wrong, they're looking at themselves, what did I mess up? What rule didn't I follow? And Satan uses that big time on them. Because all he's got to do is bring one bad thing into their life, 
and they are paralyzed trying to figure out what, why, do, why do they deserve it. Job is recognizing that he doesn't deserve it. He's, he's confused, though, because he was a prosperity gospel man. Don't get me wrong. This whole book is about Job learning that the prosperity gospel is not legitimate. All right? And because he is struggling with this, you know, he is strong enough a person to realize I've been offering sacrifices, I've been doing all these things, you know, out there, I've been, you know, following God to the best of my ability, and now all the bad things have happened to me, and I didn't do anything different than I've been doing for however many years it was before that. You know, and he's going, I just don't understand. I don't understand. Do the Jews have over 600? 613. According to the rabbis. That's so scary. I can imagine what it would I'm sorry. Yeah. I fail every second. We all fail every second anyway. Like, do literally. Like, I mean, even the... And that's part, of their, that's part of their problem is they're so stuck in legalism and law. And then not only do they have the 613 laws of God, they've added laws on top of those laws so they don't break God's laws. So we don't know how many thousands of laws they have because they really, and they're proud of this. They will tell you, we put fences around God's laws so that we don't accidentally break his laws. So our laws go out, you know, 20 or 30 feet away from God's laws so that if we, you know, if we break those, we don't accidentally break God's laws, we just break man's laws. And they're proud of it. And they're proud of that whole mentality. And I really believe that Adam did that to Eve. You know, because Eve was not the one that was told, don't, don't eat the fruit. Adam was told, don't eat the fruit. He would have told Eve, and because what does she say to, the, say to the serpent? And I don't believe it was her idea. We shall not eat of the fruit, neither shall we touch it. I don't think she was the one that came up with, neither shall we touch it. I think Adam told her, don't touch it. But that also gave... Lucifer, a avenue, you touched it and you didn't die. How much else is wrong that you've been taught? And I don't think, like I said, I don't believe it was her that did it. I believe Adam put a fence around the law and saying, well, if she never touches it, she won't eat it. And I believe that he was the one that let set her up <laughs> inadvertently <laughs> to be able to fall. And that's the problem with these fences around God's laws is when you violate the one and there's no consequence because you didn't violate God's laws, now you start questioning whether every part of what you've been taught is wrong. And that's the problem with little tiny lies in our doctrine. Little tiny lies and discrepancies in doctrine will hurt us because when the harsh part didn't happen, we're going... Well, is all is what is not true. This part wasn't true. Maybe nothing that I have been told has been true. And this is why it's so important to get in and know God's word. Literally what it means. Not what we think it means, not what others tell us it means. And this is why I tell us all we need to be good Bereans studying God's word. Now, granted, I've been studying it for a long time. I know it very well. So you can pretty much listen to what I say, but I don't want anybody taking what I say and just running with it. I want you to go to the scriptures and verify what's been said because I could make, make some mistakes. I've been known to make a mistake or two in my lifetime. Uh, just a few. <laughs> Verse uh, 12. His strength shall be hunger-bidden, and destruction shall be ready at his side. Now, hunger-bidden is a very old word. It means that you've suffered so much from famine that you have no strength. All right? Uh, you're so hungry that it has affected your strength and your vigor. Uh, it's a very strong word, but nobody uses the word in, in our day and age. It's a very old word. So he says... Uh, his strength shall be hunger-bidden. You're, you're so hungry that you've lost your strength. And destruction shall be ready at his side. He's really being nice to Job. Job, you're, you're so hungry that you're losing your strength, and destruction is on all sides of you because you're so bad. This is his implication. You're deserving what, you, what you've got, and you're not being fed by God. You're not being strengthened by God because of how bad you are. And you're losing your strength because of all of this. Uh, 
I am, like I said, I'm so glad. You know, Bildad's probably one of the worst ones. I, I really don't like Bildad uh, in, in, in any of his, in, his statements. He is, really goes after Job at every, at every statement that he makes. Um, his confidence shall be rooted out of his tabernacle, and it shall bring him to the king of terrors. His confidence, his confidence, uh, his strength shall be rooted out of his tabernacle, out of his life. In other words, God is taking out all of everything you believe and you, and you trust in, and he's kicking it out of your life. And you shall be taken to the king of terrors. Now, this one has a lot of controversy. I had to look this one up a little bit to try to figure out what it meant. Um, most people say that it is death. That yeah. Uh, I am not sure that I fully agree with that statement, but it is about as good as a statement as I can come up with. I think he's moving from one terror to the other. I think it's playing off of this idea of you're, you're going from one trap to, one, to another trap. So, but it's not, nobody that I read on them really understands. They don't, can't find a proverb on this. They, they believe it's some kind of proverb, but it's such an old proverb that nobody really knows what it is. A lot of people do think it's death. And I can understand why they say that terror is the ultimate, uh, uh, death is the ultimate terror for most people. So I understand why they will go to death. But in the context of this, I see him going from trap to trap, from, from terror to terror. And I think that's what it's talking about there is that he's going from one terror to the next terror. And the king part is the one part that throws it off. You know, maybe the ultimate terror is death. Job is looking forward to death. You know, he's in so much pain He's looking forward to death. That's not a terror to him at this point. Uh, unless he's looking at maybe going to Hades because he's been so bad that he's lost everything, you know, lost even his, his eternal life. Uh, so I don't know. This one is a kind of a questionable one. I'm not quite sure what that term means. Uh, I would say probably two-thirds of the commentators, even though they have no basis for saying it, say they believe that it is death. I can't argue with that. It's not a bad, it is the ultimate terror. Uh, so that could definitely be what king of terrors means. But nobody, nobody could justify it. And they all were very careful to say, we think it means death, but we're, we don't know what this proverb means. All right, so I'm going to leave it at that. I'm not sure what it means either. When the experts, other experts can't tell me that I'm not going to take any strong stance on something like that. Occasionally, I disagree with the experts, but you know I have to have some good reasons for this. This one, I have no good reason to believe one way or the other. Uh, it shall dwell in his tabernacle because the because it is none of his brimstone. None of his brimstone shall be scattered upon his habitation. His roots shall be dried up beneath him, and above him shall his his branch be cut off. His remembrance shall perish from the earth, and he shall have no name in the street. He shall be driven from the light into darkness and chased out of the world. He shall neither have son nor nephew among his people, nor any remaining in his dwelling. They that come after him shall be astonished at his day, and they that went before were affrighted. Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked, and this is the place of him that knows not God. Now we're going to break this down, but he's not being nice. <laughs> he says, you're going to die your children are going to die. Your forefathers are going to die. <laughs> you know, what a nice statement this guy is. He is being really, really encouraging. And we're going to break this down a little bit. It shall dwell in his tabernacle. And this maybe go back to death. And this is the one place where I kind of do believe that maybe the king of terrors is death. Because from this point on, he talks about death. It shall dwell in his tabernacle. The it, I'm going to have to believe, would be the king of terrors. <laughs> I don't like pronouns in there that do not have a good, strong <laughs> precedent. And this one, I'm assuming that it's the king of terrors, but I could be wrong. <laughs> it shall dwell in his tabernacle because it is none of his. Brimstone shall be scattered upon his habitation. Hot, fiery ash and sulfur. <laughs> Terrible picture. The idea... Well, it's, a, it's a bit less than fire, but more than more than just rock or something falling out because it is that you have the lava coming down the, down the mountainside and then you have the hot ash and, and, and sulfur that falls That's down. Still, uh, 
that's still hot and, and can start fires and everything, unless it stays up long enough uh, to, to cool off. But when you're right outside the volcano and it's exploding and erupting, that's that brimstone that comes down, the hot rock, the hot molten rock that is coming down, sulfur, uh, destructive. You know, so he's really painting a good picture for, for Job. You know, brimstone is all you're going to have in your habitation. You're going to be burnt up because of this. His roots shall be dried up beneath and above shall his branch be cut off. So your, your own life is going to be dried up, Job, your roots. And your branches, all of your family are going to be cut off as well. Now, he's already lost all of his family, so that's not a hard prediction for him. And he goes, Job, you're, going to, you're also going to dry up. You know, how bad does he really think Job is? That God is so angry at him that he's going to take everything away from him completely. Like, do you think he committed like, the ultimate sin, like murder or something? They believe that he has committed some awful sin. Okay. All right, because there's prosperity gospel, guys. He's gone from being the richest and lost everything but his own life. So to them, he has done something horrible. And because he has done something horrible, they don't even have to be nice to him because he does not deserve being nice to because he has some secret horrible sin in his life that he's not ready to, to admit. And I have seen people do this to other people. I know you've done something awful, otherwise all these bad things, and don't even need the prosperity gospel for that to happen sometimes. You reap what you sow, so you're, you're having a really bad life. You have done something horrible. You need to really get out and, and admit what you've done so that you can be forgiven. And that's the problem sometimes. This is why judging others is such a horrible thing. Bad things are happening to you, so I judge that you've done something bad. That is going to totally change the way I react to you. You're obviously deserving everything that happens to you, and this is what they're, what they're coming at. They never show him any mercy and any love because from their attitude, they've already judged him guilty. And when he did not respond by admitting that he was guilty right from the bat, they start attacking him because he does not deserve mercy and love in their mind. And this is something we get wrapped up in so often. Well, this person obviously deserves what they're going through, so I'm just going to be mean and nasty to them. And it's hard, and I understand how easy it is to fall into this, this whole trap. And this is the trap they've fallen into. Job, you're, you're mean and awful and nasty, so all these bad things are what you deserve, and we're not going to be nice to you until you finally admit who you, what you've done. You know, because they've already judged him guilty. And they have no mercy in their heart. They have no love in their heart because he, in their mind, is guilty and they're not going to release anything from him. And this is the sad thing that's going on in him. They said, you're going to dry out. You've already, you know, all your kids are going to be gone, which is already true. We saw that in the first chapter. His remembrance shall perish from the earth and he shall have no name in the street. Job, you're, you're, you're you're so bad that when you die, nobody's going to remember you. Nobody's going to care about you. Now, the sad thing is, it's going to be true anyway for most people. Most people aren't remembered after a generation or two anyway, unless they've done something really big or really notorious. One, one or the other, you've gone way out on either side, and that's about the only way you get remembered for a long time. And even then, they only remember the one, act that you did, the one or two acts that you did. They don't remember your life. How can I prove that? You know, how much of us know anything about Thomas Jefferson or George Washington? You know, if you really know your history, you might know four or five things about George Washington. And half of those are mythological in the first place. But, you know, there's a few things that are true about him that if you that if you really studied, you might know that. But how much of us know much more about than those couple of few areas? Thomas Jefferson, uh, Benjamin Franklin, they only lived 300, 300 years ago and we don't remember them. We don't remember them 280 (laughs) You know, 300 years when we don't remember much about them at all. How many of us know almost anything about our great-grandfather or great-grandmother? And maybe go back great-great and might even know their name if you've really done some research, but you probably don't know anything about them. 
I know the names of a lot of my relatives going way back, but I don't know anything about them. And this is what he's saying, Job, you're not even going to remember. You're not going to be remembered. Now, the thing is, Bildad was completely wrong. Job is still being remembered 4,500 years later. All right? Because the whole book is about him. And we know quite a bit about at least one phase of his life. Not much more about that other than that one phase of life. But we know a little bit about Job. Bildad saying, Job, you've been so bad, you're not going to be totally forgotten. You're not even admitting what you've done, so we're not even going to remember the bad thing you did because you're just going to die out and nobody's going to remember you. You won't have a name or a reputation on the street. You won't have any. And then he goes even further. He goes, um, neither shall you have, um, uh, excuse me, verse 18. And he shall be driven from light into darkness and chased out of the world. All right, literally from life to death. And basically he's saying, and you're headed to hell. You're headed to hell. That's how I read it. All right, there's a few other people read it differently, but I'm reading it that you're being chased. Light to darkness is death, and then chased right out of the world. Some people say that's death, and that would be the parallelism. But I think it's basically saying that you know, you're being chased right out of existence um, into hell. It could be death. Um, a, lot of, a lot of the scholars believe it's death, and that would be the parallelism. You, you, you're light to dark out of this world. So... Um, but you're still being chased from light to dark, so he's basically saying even when you leave this world, you're not going to a good place. You're going to go to Sheol uh, from their statement. And neither shall you have son or nephew among his people, nor any remaining in his dwelling. So not only will you not have your children, you're not even going to have your nephews. Now, this is pretty, he's really pronouncing a pretty bad curse on, on Job. This is, this is the indication of how bad he thinks Job is. Job, not only are you going to die, not only are your children going to die, but because you're so bad, your nephews are going to die. The contemplation is also then that his brothers would have to die as well. He's going, you're not going to have anybody left because you are so bad that God's going to judge your entire family. How bad does Bildad think Job is? You know, Job, you haven't hit a bad spot in your life, but you are an awful, terrible, abhorrent person that God is going to bring such complete judgment to that your entire line, all the way back to your dad and, and backwards the other direction, is going to be wiped out. This is pretty sad stuff. You know, Job, you are terrible. And this is from somebody who's been looking up to Job for most of his life. You know, Job, you were really on top of the world. We all thought you were really good, but man, you must have been really hiding something bad in your life because look how bad things are. And because you're so bad, everything is going to be taken, everything is going to be taken away from you. I would, I'm glad he's not my friend. That Bildad's not my friend. Because he would not be, have any mercy on anything going wrong. He goes, they that come after him shall be astonished or appalled at his day as they that went before were afraid or affrighted. Now, this is kind of interesting in the statement. He goes, you're not going to have anybody following you, but those that do follow you are going to be appalled at your day. I find this a very interesting statement because it is exactly what happens in our day where people are so confused about truth that they say diametrically opposed things in the same voice. And here is the same thing happening from Bildad. Uh, you're not going to have any sons and nephews or anything, but those that are coming after you will be, be appalled at what happened to you. I find it very interesting. You know, maybe he's thinking not your own relatives, he's thinking us 4,000 years later when we think of him. I don't know. Um, and they that went before you were afraid. So, you, you know, your brothers, your brothers, your sisters, your, you know, your uncles, your aunts are all going to be afraid about what happened to you. And this is a true picture of what the prosperity gospel people believe. That God judges people so that others will be afraid to do what they did. You know, and that's why they won't help each other. 
Because then they, the, what God is trying to do to correct them won't be used to, to correct other people because they got away with it. It's a really sad way to live. Really sad way to live because you do not want to help others because you would be breaking the punishment that they deserve and others won't learn from their punishment. So you're going, well, well yeah, got to make sure I don't do what they do. I don't know what it was they did, but I'm not going to do it. You know, well, even worse, I'm going to make sure I don't do anything wrong because I don't want what happened to them to happen to me. And it drives them deeper into their works orientation. And Satan loves that point of view because everybody's so focused on fear and trying to do what's right, trying to please God. And, be, and unless they truly accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they go to hell as a good person. And this is the really sad thing that happens because when you're not focused on Jesus, you're focused on your own works. The question really comes down, did you ever accept Jesus or has it always been works? And I'm not their judge. God is their only judge. But Satan loves it if he can get them so focused on works that they don't focus on Jesus. He doesn't care if they're a great person you know, following rules as long as they don't choose to follow Jesus. And then he's going, you know, they'll come down to hell and going, well, hold it, I don't deserve to be here. I followed all the rules. He goes, yeah, you followed most of the rules. And now you're here with me here in hell for the rest of eternity because you didn't follow the most important rule of accepting Jesus. And this is the problem. I had one person tell me one time they don't want to go to heaven because I told them that anybody that accepted Jesus would go to heaven. They go, I don't want to go to heaven with a bunch of murderers. I go, well, then you'll go to hell with a bunch of murderers. But my murderers will be forgiven and have a new, new, new uh, mentality in heaven. Yours are going to be just as bad. Of course, you're not going to see them anyway because it's darkness and you know, burning and everything and conscience burning, so you won't see them anyway. It doesn't really matter. But they, their attitude was, if bad people can go to heaven, I don't want to go there. And I'm going, so you'll go to hell where it says nothing but bad people. Even the good people are bad, but you want to go there. doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, but that was their mentality. If God is going to forgive people, I don't want to go where he's forgiving them. And that did not make any sense to me, but it made perfect sense to them. And then the last verse, he says, Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked, and this is the place of him that knows not God. Translation, this is your dwelling because you're bad and you don't know God. He's being very judgmental against Job. And he is literally, this very short chapter, he has completely attacked Job's veracity, Job's relationship with God, and his, honor, and his integrity. He has just attacked Job completely, saying, Job, we know you're evil and that you've done something bad, and we're not going to be nice to you because you do not deserve it. Again, we need to be careful that we don't do this kind of stuff to other, to other people. And it's so important because it is easy for us to, and we do it to ourselves frequently too. When something bad happens to us, we start ripping ourselves apart, saying, why do I have all these bad things happening to me? And yes, that could be the first step we need to do. Have, have I done something that deserves the punishment without getting totally in introspective? And I'm going, yeah, I've, I've committed this sin, and I know I committed this sin habitually. I, I guess I deserve this. God, I, I repent, I'm changing, and then endure our hardship. But for the most part, there's lots of times when things bad happen to us that are, seem to be bad that we can't understand and then we're just going to have to say, God, I don't understand it. God, help me to accept that Romans 8.28 is still true even when it looks like everything's bad. That all things work together for good for those who love God and called according to his purpose. And there have been several times in my life when I've gone through things and I can't figure out why I'm going through them. And all I can do is say, God, I don't understand any of this. I am going to accept that you have a reason and that good will work out. And sometimes he shows to me why it worked out the way it did. Sometimes there's been things in my life that I don't know to this day why I went through. When I get to heaven, maybe God will show me. I do know one, and I like using this one because it's a great example of Romans 8.28. Uh, I walked with gout problem for six months 
and could not walk on my foot, could not sleep because of the pain very, very much. I, you know, and I'm going at the end of the six months, I'm going, God, I have no idea why you did all this. I do not see anything good without being in pain for six months. A year later, somebody said they were encouraged by watching me be faithful in pain. I'm going, okay, God, I now understand why I was in pain was not for me, it was for them. Now, what does God use our suffering to do? Whatever he wants to use it for. And it may be for somebody else. If you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, those guys that got martyred were not martyred for their sake. Well, I guess they were. They went to heaven. But, <laughs> but they were, we're still remembering them thousands of years later and taking the example that they gave of being faithful to God in their pain. And when you, you know, and I don't know if you've ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs, but it's a very hard book to read because man is so evil against man that it's a very hard book to read because Fox did not water down what happened. Well, he might have even watered it down, it's, but it's very hard to read because he talks about the evil that people did to the Christians. And yet they stayed faithful. And we're still reading about these guys thousands, hundreds, thousands of years later. What was good about it? The example to encourage us. They ended up in heaven, and we get to still read about it and, and be encouraged by what they went through. So we just want to keep this in mind. There's reasons for everything that God does. And even if we don't understand what the reason is, we need to just trust that God has a reason. Most of what we go through, we'll see later on. You know, well, God, if I hadn't gone through that, I wouldn't be ready to go through this. And we may not feel comforted by that, <laughs> but at least we know God has a reason. And if nothing else, sometimes it is literally just for others to see us stay faithful when hard things happen. And saying, wow, they stayed faithful. I wonder, I wonder if I can stay faithful. Why do we see all the people in the Bible go through the hard things they did? Because they stayed faithful. Otherwise, they wouldn't be recorded in the Bible. So that we can look back and say, wow, God, you did it for them. You might just do it for me. You know, and hopefully it's a lot more than might. You know, we should be able to say, God, you did it for them. They're, they weren't any better than me, so I can, I can get the reward just like they did. And this is what we need to be looking at. Why is he putting us through some things? And I feel pretty comfortable. God has not put me through a whole lot, but I've gone through some hard things. I look at some people and go, God, I don't know why you're putting them through that, but you know, hopefully they stay faithful and encourage them to stay faithful. If we had known Job at this point in his life, what would we have been thinking about him? I hope he stays faithful. I hope he's going to stay faithful with God. He did. And then we read the last chapter and he's totally rewarded back, back by God once he starts really understanding that it's all about God's grace, not about his works. And this is the beauty of it. He stayed faithful. And we can go back and look and say, he was faithful before, so much so that God says he's a perfect man that hates evil. And at the end, he's even more perfect because he's now learned some lessons and he's prayed for, prayed for those that really hated him and despitefully used him. And God rewards him back, at, back, in, back up to full capacity. So we see one little section of his life where he looks terrible. And this is what we need to be very careful. We cannot judge our life in a part where we have fallen, even if we deserve it, and say, well, God's thrown me away because I made a mistake. God will say, repent and be restored. Repent and be restored. And God is so patient, so patient. And he proves it over and over again that he's got great patience. His words all the time in the Bible is remember Remember what you had. Remember what has been provided. Remember what has been given to you in the past. And our job is just to remember <laughs> and say, God, I'm going to trust you. And then when we're dealing with others, remember that God has been merciful and gracious to us, so we need to be merciful and gracious to others. And sometimes that's what the bad things in our life are for, so that we'll learn to be more merciful and gracious to others because God showed us mercy and grace. He showed us how to love so therefore we can love others. 
And this is the whole thing that we find out. We do not know what love is until we get to know God. We do not know what grace is until we get to know God's grace. We do not get to know mercy until we get to know God's mercy and be able to fully implement it all. Lord, we ask you to go with us today. Lord, help us to apply grace and mercy to all those that are around us, including those that are despitefully using us. And we ask you to just be with us in all that we do, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you, and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10.9-8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.